This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we absolutely are learning how to invest Warren Buffett style based on a conversation going on here between my daughter and I. Oh, my yes. lovely, lovely daughter who thinks I'm full of it sometimes. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Pretty true. Anybody that's listened to these podcasts know. I just need a little clarification. That's all. Some little clarification. And um, and we're getting there, I think. it's <clears throat> It's been a really, really interesting couple of years here. And we have a lot of podcasts. If you guys want to review them, if you're just new to this, they're out there and they're really good to work through. There's a lot of investing education there. In the School of Investing, founded essentially by Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and added to you know to a great degree actually by Charlie Munger, who is the one who encouraged Warren to be looking for wonderful businesses and buy them on sale. Mm -hmm. And that's really the essence of investing here as, that we're trying to to go through and learn and study in the real world um, to try to find great companies that are on sale. And man, alive, are we ever in a market that is a wild market. The market dropped 10, 15, 10, 15%, depending on which market index you look at. And is working its way back up, and we've got the Trump effect going, and some people say it's real, and some people say it's just an illusion, and it's going to crumble, and we're in our 10th year of, of no recession, and that's the longest in American history since they've been keeping track of this. Mm -hmm. And we are at a Schiller PE, which we've talked about a number of times, that's still way up there. And by way up there, I mean, in the last 140 years, it's only been where it is now, three other times and in each it's case been like we that either, for so long now oh it has but in in, in all these previous cases that we entered into a depression or recession and giant stock market drops and it just hasn't happened yet also when you invest in a broad market mutual fund which is what everybody tells you to do of course in your 401k is buy mutual funds and indexes the Schiller PE done by Robert Schiller at Yale suggests rather strongly that if you do that in this market, you will have a 20-year return substantially less than 5% per year. And that Wait, say good. that one more time. You mean like if you invest today? Right now. Based oh, okay. on the Schiller. Anytime the Schiller PE is above about 24, and it's right 29, 30 right now, anytime in the last 140 years that you did that in the that first year, you had a 20-year rate of return by investing in the index, S&P 500, of below 5%. And some of those returns mm -hmm. were negative or mm -hmm. zero, which are amazing. What was that gigantic ding that just happened there? Oh, I didn't hear that. Maybe it's on your computer. Oh, it must be on my computer. Yeah. So I was reading, um, you mentioned Charlie Munger, and I was reading Poor Charlie's Almanac the other day, which is... Such a good book. Yeah, it's such a good book and it's like hard to read because it's basically a coffee table book of 
interesting quotes and anecdotes. Right. So you, you can't really like page through it, you know, in, in, in a like linear way. But I was sort of like doing the thing where you kind of like randomly pick pages and sections. And by the way, everybody I've ever talked to about that book reads it like this. Um, and there was this page I turned to and it said, it was, it was quoting, quoting Charlie Munger. And he said, I've always called this kind of investing focus investing. And I thought I like of that it. because we have sat here and debated what to call this Buffett style value investing where it's not buying 200 companies that are cheap regardless of quality. It's like the Munger Buffett style of finding just a small number of companies. And he's always pushing Buffett to even buy less companies and um, and make sure they're really good ones, although they may not be as cheap as the value investing model would have you choose. So he calls it focus investing. And I really like that. What do you think? That's a really good name. I like that too. Um, by the way, I just wanted to say that Charlie has made the statement that their billions of dollars that they made could be boiled down to 15 good decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and so. very, and, and here's the other side of it and very few bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's the key. And that's why this kind of investing, we don't really know what to call it because it's not really value investing, although it goes under that big general heading. Uh, we call it at, at my shop, we call it rule one investing for, you know, rule one, don't lose money. Uh, you know, the focus is to not lose money on the mistakes and to have upside on the ones you occasionally get right. And I think what Charlie's pointing out is they've obviously bought a lot more than 15 stocks over the time period of 60 years, mm -hmm. but 15 good decisions was, was what it took to make really an insane fortune and the greatest returns ever in the history of investing as long as you didn't give it back, as long as you didn't give it back on the ones that didn't go yeah. really that well. And that's the real lesson here. And of course, you know, you're all, we're all going to have mistakes. You're going to, you're going to lose money on some stuff. And Buffett and Munger both lost money on some stuff and they've both been down 50% from time to time, mark to market in the marketplace. And the, the truth of it is that this kind of investing, I think Charlie would say and agree that if you do it right, it's less risky than any other kind of investing you can do. Less risky. Because so you're going to buy a few things you truly understand, and you're not going to get any of them badly wrong. And as long as you don't do that, some of them will turn out to be quite a lot right, and you'll make a lot of money. Let's talk about how to not make those mistakes. Because it's right. so easy in hindsight. <laughs> it's super obvious in hindsight. <laughs> well, particularly <laughs> but, in this market, it's really hard yeah. to do anything except hindsight. Because... As, as as we say, we, we don't want to try to jump over six-foot bars here. We're not that athletic. We're not superstars. We're not Olympic medalists here in terms of investing. We're just ordinary people, and therefore, we need to be sure that the level of understanding, or the level of difficulty of determining this is going to be a successful investment has to be very low. And in this market, almost nothing is very low difficulty. And the reason for that is that although there's lots of wonderful companies, they're all extremely pricey. They're all very expensive and you can't make a lot of money. That's, and by the way, that's what we're about here. We're trying to hit 
wealth, riches, financial independence, freedom, whatever name you want to put in it, whatever amount of money that is to you, that's what we're going for. And in this market, it's there's just very little out there that isn't a, a you know a three or four foot bar. So everything's hindsight. You just look back. You look back. You go, oh wow, I, I should have done that. You know, but man, at and in this market. And by the way, when I say in this market, I'm talking about since 2015. This market has been crazy pricey, and the Schiller has been off the chart, and the Wilshire GDP ratio has been nuts, and every indication is the market should crumble. But the Federal Reserve, the the functions of politics are driving people into the stock market with no other choices. They, they can't buy bonds. Real estate's peaked. It's just, where else do you go here? So well, we are an idea. in a very tough place. Okay. <laughs> go. That was my little lecture on that for you. Thank you. I, my idea is IPOs that are coming down the pike oh, no. this year. I know you hate them. Oh, no. Listen, hear me out. No. I mentioned this. No, I don't want to listen. Yeah, you have to listen. No. That's how this works. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this is why I have a microphone. You have to listen. Not IPOs. Okay, tell okay, me listen. about Okay, listen. So this year, normally I would say, yes, IPOs involve usually very small companies that are not fully developed and often, at least in hindsight, looking back at the dot-com bubble, often were companies that were not ready to be public, really, and were just going public to raise money. So... That is not the case these days. We went through a big slowdown with virtually no IPOs for a while. And they've started coming back now in the last year. This year, there are going to be some really major IPOs of companies that in any other situation would have gone public three years ago or four years ago. Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and Slack. These are huge very far along developed companies. I would not call them startups in any way. And they may go public this year and may not. I mean, Uber's been talking about it now for like like three years, pretty seriously. And they just keep on holding off um, because of all the problems the company has gone through. So what I think is the question here is, yes, these are IPOs, but are they companies that are still mature enough assuming we have the financial data for the last few years, which they will have to put out, are they mature enough for us to do a value investing analysis on them? Oh, man. Well, let's let's think a little bit. First off, let's discuss what an IPO is sure. for everybody. Okay. All right? IPO stands for Initial Public Offering. And what this means is that a corporation <clears throat> breaks itself up into a large number of shares of stock, <clears throat> excuse me, which are then sold to typically uh, or are given to founders. This is what you do as an attorney, mm -hmm. you know, share that out to founders. Um, they're sold to venture capitalists, mm -hmm. to angel investors, to to people who are putting money in. And this, at, this happens when what company. you're talking about is when they're private still. When they're private, right. And they... And then hopefully they do well. And if they do well enough to uh, have a good story for the markets that's out there, then they decide to go public. And what that means is that the people who own the company are going to sell some of, or sorry, the company is going to sell some of its stock that it has in, the, in its treasury to the general public. 
Correct. And the company is going to then take that capital in and do things with it. Mm-hmm. That's the idea, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So typically and, what happens is not that the people who own the company when it's private then give up some of their shares for it to go public. Typically what happens right. is that the company issues new shares, so additional shares to what's already been issued, which so they keep their shares, but their ownership percentage goes down. That's how that works. Right. And there's some very right. interesting ways around this dilution of control that some companies have put into place. And we've talked about this on the podcast um, for having special classes of shares. So a certain class would have far more voting power than another class. And that's how some founders have maintained control over their company, even after it's gone public. So those are details that are important to know about how the company is governed and how these shares are being sold. Right. So that's happened, for example, with Google and it does. It isn't the case with Apple. So it, they can be very, very big companies and choose to go different directions with that. You mean the having a different voting class? Right. Ah, okay. So what what an IPO means is that the company is handing stock over to the public in exchange for cash. And there's a couple of major reasons why they would do this. The first major reason is they need cash. Yeah. right that's the bad reason (laughs) (laughs) and in this world we're in right now there's more cash available for companies privately by at least 10 to 1 than there is publicly so in the old days back before America built up such an enormous market of venture capital and private equity capital with all these hedge funds and giant amounts of capital available for private companies, um, the only real viable way to get capital into your company was to sell stock, uh, a lot of capital, was to sell stock publicly. That's why a lot of companies went public is yeah. because, oh, we, we're cash-starved, we're growing really fast, uh, we're AT&T, and we need a lot of money to put these new things in called telephone lines everywhere, and we need a fortune to do that. And if we do that, we're going to have a monopoly, and it's going to be amazing. And you, you, And so they go public, and they get the cash from people with a good story. And they build the telephone lines and have a monopoly. Okay, so that's that's the old days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Today um, they do that also because they need money. So you've got a company like Uber and Lyft, or two that you mentioned that are thinking that are really seriously coming out with IPOs. Both of those companies are in ride sharing, and both of them are trying to own the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And in order to own the world, you got to keep paying out money in terms of an investment in building your infrastructure and your marketplace more than you're getting back in in cash flow in the hopes that someday you can stop building the infrastructure, you can quit putting up the telephone lines and just start reaping all the cash. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about this statement you made that there's 10 times more private investing funds out there, money funds, than... uh than public? Where are you getting? I've never heard that. Where? What's the evidence yeah, it's, of that? It's an enormous pool of capital relative to the pool of capital that's that, for IPOs. I mean, as you, it's not surprising. As you were saying just a few years ago, there were almost no IPOs. So there wasn't any money. I'm not saying that the pool itself, 
there, there is no pool of IPO capital, okay? You just go raise it. So it's hard to know. I, what I'm saying is, let me make sure I, it's Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm not following that this line. The amount of money that was, a, was that went into IPOs last year uh-huh. was dwarfed by the amount of money that went into private equity. Oh, that's a very different statement than the one you made earlier. Okay. Well, sort of. Sort of. The point, the, I think the, the implication here is not different than what I, what you sort of got from that statement. And that is that there's a lot more money available for private equity than there is for IPOs. In other words, people would rather do private deals right now than do public deals right now. And that's a little scary. Yeah. I'm not sure I would put it that there's less money available for IPOs. I think there's a lot of money available. The question is, do people want to deploy it for IPOs? And and maybe they don't as much, but there's lots of money available. Uh, on the private is, side, really. on the private side, there's a huge amount of venture capital, angel, and private equity money, as you mentioned. And I completely agree with you. The reason that companies used to go public and used to meaning like back in 1999 was that they just wanted to get that sweet, sweet IPO money and like rake in the cash. And that doesn't have the same appeal anymore because there's so many requirements on companies once they go public that these guys are trying to stay private as long as they can. And as you mentioned, there is enough money that they can stay private. Now that said, there are constraints on that private money. Of course, there's constraints on any sort of investment that you take. So um, they, I think also, frankly, would like to get away from the venture capital cycle is my guess. You know, there's obviously there's a place for regulation, and um, you know, and this is one of these statements where you can hear the butt coming from a million miles away. I'll, I'll, but, I'll resist myself, <laughs> right? But um, this is a really clear example of how just little pieces of regulation over many many years on public companies have created such a, a brick wall of of an obstacle. To go in public, that now most people, most companies would much prefer to stay private, and that brick wall has been built one brick at a time. First, the wall got put up back in the 1930s with with uh, Roosevelt's administration deciding they were going to bring all public entities under one umbrella of control called the Securities Exchange Commission. And they have gradually added, 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 you know, more and more regulations as as Embarrassing things happen, like Bernie Madoff. Yeah, as to companies the do bad stuff. Yeah, companies do bad stuff. People companies do cheat bad stuff on their on their numbers. I mean, all of these things that we try to regulate, and which, in all fairness, make the American stock market the fairest stock market in the world for investors to be in. We love it because it's so transparent relative to anybody else in the world about what's going on out there because of all of our regulations. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm not but sure it's automatically that, a bad thing that it's... Uh, well, there here's are, the bad side of it is who <laughs> yeah. wants to be who wants to be that transparent? Who wants to have, you know, running around out there in your underwear as far as a company goes and showing all of this stuff to your 
to your competitors that you don't have to show totally. when you're private. That's a really good point. You know, putting your directors at risk of lawsuits. Your your CEO and your CFO are now directly at risk of criminal prosecution if it turns out that they've made, you know, even an, an, a mistake on their accounting that they signed off for and saying that it was absolutely accurate and fully represented the company accurately. And then somebody comes along in five years and says, no, it didn't, based on hindsight, those guys can go to jail. So there's a lot of intensity around this that's starting to kind of backfire. There is, yeah. When you put a gun at everybody's head, hey, man, these are rich people. They don't have to do it the way you want to make them do I'm it, I'm not right? sure it's backfiring, though, just because it's creating lower numbers of publicly traded I mean, it is creating lower numbers overall, but lower numbers of IPOs. Um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing. We're avoiding well, the crappy ones, right? Um, I don't know. I, the, the real question is how much this regulation really helps, right? It's, it's almost like, do you really ca catch anybody? I mean, David Einhorn wrote a wonderful book called You Can Fool Some of the People All of the Time <laughs> about his hedge fund catching a company called Allied Capital in absolute accounting fraud, reporting it to the SEC, and then Allied, which was a big company and had been around forever, went to the SEC and said, this guy's harassing us and, and he is, uh, he's creating all these lies because he has this large short position against our company, he stands to make a fortune if our stock goes down, and he's totally lying. Hmm. And the SEC investigated Einhorn and destroyed his hedge fund. Absolutely put him out of business. He had to start a whole different fund. Wow. And it was a lie. Allied was lying. And they went bankrupt in 2008, right after Einhorn wrote the book oh. about what a crazy... I mean, he really? got drugged down into a basement in Washington, D.C. and interrogated by the SEC. And so you got to wonder, I but mean, people mean? like me... Just for publicly accusing a company? Absolutely. That company went after him for blood and they had the lawyers and the money to do it. So, and the, and the friends at the SEC. And so they went after him. Oh, so they sued him for no, defamation, they just accused something like that. Him. They just accused him. They didn't actually sue him. So they accused him of using uh, a lie to drive their stock down. Oh, I see that it was personally motivated so that he yeah, would publicly give information about a company that was negative, the stock price, because right. he has so much influence, the stock price would then drop and he would stock then make would money. Drop, so it was essentially self-dealing. Right. That was right, their accusation. Right, right. Oh, that actually makes yeah. sense. <laughs> Which is a total... <laughs> Sorry they, to tell they, you, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> now, Einhorn, thank God, recovered and is now one of the more successful hedge fund managers ever. And the book is phenomenal. And what it will do is it will really put you on edge about regulators. I mean, look at the most regulated business in the world was Fannie Mae, which is the, the, the private company that was buying mortgages from banks using government loans to do it. They had over 100 securities and accounting regulators in the offices of Fannie Mae full time. Hmm. 100 were there and Fannie Mae was committing fraud. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And look at Madoff. Madoff was reported to the SEC multiple times and they never caught the fact that he's using a nobody accountant to do all this I didn't stuff. I know he was reported he was multiple times. 
Yeah, multiple times. Um, look at uh, look at the the Macondo well. Just the regulators in general, the oil and gas regulators were all over the Macondo well. What's the Macondo right? well? That's the well that blew up in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, the BP well. You know, yeah, the BP well. And it's like, oh man, it's like everywhere you look, it's they get there just a day late and a dollar short. And meanwhile, we've restricted commerce dramatically to a point now where if you can avoid going public and avoid all of this scrutiny and danger and criminal prosecution, you do it. You don't go public unless it's really important that you go public and, and crank in the money. Yeah, so and, consider and that, who goes public. And that situation protects individual, what do you, what do you call us? Investors, uh, people who invest in the public markets, us. Right, which leaves us with just perhaps the crap. <laughs> just the crap is making it through. That is so wrong. That is so I don't know if that's wrong. Accurate. I don't know if that's wrong. Consider this. If you are a really great company, why would you go public? Those two things are not equal. If you're a really great company and you choose not to go public because you don't want to deal with the onerous public regulations, that doesn't mean that everyone else who is public is awful. No, it means that everyone else who is public is going public in spite of the onerous regulations. And then you have to be a little skeptical and ask, why? Why do you need... Why can't you get the money you need from private sources if the money is even more available as a private investment than it is as a public one? It can't really be about the money, can it? It must be that your private investors are a little leery of buying in at this price. Right. Ooh. I think you're, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't put it quite that way, but yes, I think that's right. It's, um, it's a combination of wanting more investors that uh, more investors is wrong, but like wanting to have access to this much larger market without having to make private transactions. And secondly, have that private market be at a higher price. I don't, I don't think the markets, uh, well, I mean, first off, consider what happens when a company does go public. They take a certain amount of stock and they sell it to the public, right? Mm -hmm in the initial public offering, and that money goes to the company. Mm -hmm. That's the last money that goes to the company. That's it. All of the rest of the money, the public trading that's going on, is simply supporting the balance sheet of the company, if you will. It, it supports for the banks and lenders and for suppliers and for the original investors that this company has value. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument is that, uh, you know, if the, if the stock is selling for 20 bucks a share, that the company has a value around $20 a share. It's worth that. And you know that because a lot of people are investing on it at that price and they're not stupid. Right. But that's, when you that's, said that that's, that's the last the company sees, I suppose if you're talking about the company as an entity, yes. But right. when you're talking about the company as a group of people, no. Because right. these people own shares in the company. And if it's if it's a proper startup, most of the employees will own shares in the company. And it's when the stock when the company goes public that those people then can sell their shares finally. They're finally worth something to them because they're actually not allowed to sell them on the private market. And 
that is what these people are often working for. Right. And so now you think, okay, now let's take a look at why they would sell the shares in the public market. Why would I sell my shares in the public market if I think my company is really going to go up and grow? Why, why would I sell those shares? Have I got some why. better place to put the money? I'll tell you why. Because Am I going to grow the money somewhere else? These quicker? private investors also want the same exit out of that company by selling their shares publicly. And they're not going to keep on putting money into these companies without having the ability to have that exit down the line. Right. So think about it. Do you like IPOs? Who are you buying the stock from? Number one, who are you you're buying, buying it? You're buying what it from, mean? if you go in and buy it at the IPO, which is actually hard to do, oh, you're, you're going to have to be a me. significant client of a broker dealer that's got access to that original IPO. But let's say you buy the stock shortly after the IPO, right? Okay. So Facebook goes public at whatever, 30 or something, and immediately falls to about 18. So you're really smart. You didn't buy the stock at the IPO, but now you buy it. So who are you buying it from? Assuming that taking the restrictions off, you're buying it from employees who are getting out. Well, it depends on you're how long, from, there's often a lockup period. Right. I'm saying post lockup or there isn't a lockup. You're buying it from employees. You're buying it from the venture capitalists who put the money yeah. in. In other words, people that know more about this company than you do are getting out. And you're getting in. Yeah. So you really, really have to be careful about an IPO because... Often what's going on there is people are cashing out. That's definitely that's the name of the game. Definitely. It's cash out time. But I'm not talking and we're about going, going from smart money yay, is selling IPO. to the dumb money. I'm talking about looking at the financial data of a company that is mature and making an investing decision just as I would with any other company. Right. Okay. So then we got an issue of where's the valuation of the business, which is exactly. now we're back on our turf. And you again, we want to look at something that's got a track record of 10 years, um, especially the last yeah, 10 so years, that's, because that's we want to see how this is done. That's the point of contention, because they're not going to have 10 years, but they might have right. five years. And I'll confess, I bought Google when it had like four years of data. All and right. I did it in Explain a risky biz portfolio. <laughs> well, because they had a phenomenal four years of data uh -huh. when they went public. Very Number one. Number scrutinized. Two, I didn't I didn't buy them at the IPO. I bought them after I really studied the company and understood. I didn't buy them at the IPO because I didn't understand how they made money well enough until I started using their services, their, started structuring advertising. I started to understand it better. And then I went, oh, yeah, this is good. So, so how long after? Do you remember? Well, I bought it at 200. I think it went public at 80. So All right. it's, it was a while, a year or so. Something Please like that. Tell me it went up pretty fast after it came public. Google. I've sold it. Oh, no. I'm, out. <laughs> I'm clearing out in this. I'm I'm cashing, honey. I'm I'm moving toward more and more cash right here. I'm I'm very leery of where this thing is going uh, for lots of reasons that we've discussed. But back to the IPO thing. Yeah. Um I'm not going to rule it out, obviously, because I do it occasionally, but it's in the risky biz part of the portfolio for lack of long track record. I want to see track record through the last time that that that, that the uh, tide went out, right? The yeah. last recession. Yeah, yeah. I want to see how this company did in that last recession so that we know that it's one of the winners when the recession is over, not one of the losers. Mm -hmm. So, right? we, we're, so we, uh, let's just assume <laughs> we do not have that. 
let's assume we have five years of good financial history, mm-hmm. fully audited, fully vetted. Mm-hmm. And that all adds up with only the five years to, um, to okay, and, and it has a moat and, and we like the management and we understand mm-hmm. what the company does really well. And it's like in every other way, this company is a go. Okay, so two two kinds of companies come in public here at the extremes. Number one, each with five-year track record. Number one, it's got a five-year track record, and it's just been great. Straight up, making money like crazy, lots and lots of cash flow. Yeah. Okay? Now, this is the unicorn of unicorns right here because... Yeah, because they're going to typically have no cash flow or lots of debt. <laughs> exactly. Why are they got all this cash flow? Why are they going public, yeah. right? So <laughs> this almost never happens, but let, let's say it does. The real problem is the last five years have been straight up, right? So you got the last two or three years of the Obama administration pumping tons of money into the economy. Mm-hmm. Then you got the first two years of the Trump administration pumping even more money into the company, country with uh, tax that's cuts. That's interesting. So you're saying boom. these specific five years yeah, are somewhat special. These five special. years are going to give you a – the tide's coming in in these five years. Uh, that's interesting. I was just sort of thinking generic five years, but you're right. You got to think about which five years they are. Exactly. And so these five years, I would be, I would be perhaps dialing down the numbers that I'm looking at for looking like where it's going to be more through a recession and all that. And after the initial growth period is settling down a bit. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we might look at that and that's Google. Okay. So Google's a unicorn, unicorn, cash flow, phenomenal, and they still went public. So dang, let's buy them. All right. <clears throat> That's a unicorn. The unicorn, very rare is what I mean by that. Yeah. And then there's the other company, which is Uber. Yeah. So here's this phenomenal business plan, earth-shaking, revolutionary, changing all of our lives. Phenomenal. And aside from the you know founder issues and all that kind of stuff, let's just look at the business. The business is amazing. They huge moat. And it's hard to see how this gets blown out of the water. Let's assume you can't can't think anything other than it's got a great moat. The trouble is they're losing money hand over fist. Yeah. They're just I'm running not, through uh, the money. Don't misconstrue this as me advocating for any of these companies. Right. But I think I, I am interested because I think out of what I typically think of as an IPO company, these are very mature. And so that's why it's an interesting question. Right. And I think that's that's a key point is that just because it's IPO doesn't mean it's brand new. And, and fair enough. But at the same time, Uber looks pretty immature to me. They're not a mature company. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're, they're still trying to figure out how to run the thing. <laughs> they're still changing boards of directors. They're still running massive negative cash flow. I just saw and a headline you know, today that said Uber <laughs> just hired its first chief privacy officer ever. Uh, ever. Uh, what the heck have they been doing over there? This company's entire problem is privacy. <laughs> it never entered my mind they wouldn't have a chief privacy officer, but nope, not till now. Yeah. So, the, you know, there's there's the two extremes. You sort of got Google on one side making lots of cash flow. The first four years are spectacular. You understand the business. You see the moat. You see it's disruptive and it's going to be around a while. It's blowing everybody else out of the water. Okay, take a shot, right? If you got everything like that, but you the only thing negative is it just doesn't have a lot of time. And it, it, is, it hasn't gone through a recession. You have to make a judgment, but it's so it's risky biz, right? In that yeah. part of the portfolio. So when you Don't say that, you bank. mean like a small part of your portfolio? 
yeah, it's a piece of the 10% piece. Hmm. So it might be two and a half to 5%, something in that range um, where you can feel comfortable if you made a mistake. Okay. Right? Because you just don't have enough information no matter how much you know about it. You don't have enough to know. It's still at that early stage. Uber, not, don't even, nothing like Uber. You don't buy stuff that's coming public to get the money to survive and to build its market. That is pure crapshoot. That is a straight up. And by the way, they're going to price it through the roof so high. They're pricing it really high because the, the private equity guys don't want to put the money in at that new valuation. They're ready to get out. They're ready to bail and say, look, you want to take it to the next level, it's all you, because we're out of here. We, we took it as far as we could. We don't want to put any more money in at these sky-high valuations with a negative cash flow company. Now you take it. I, Let's take it from smart money to dumb money. I think money. that's a lot of conjecture. I think that they all could right, continue on privately if they want to. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. At the price they're laying out on this company, I mean, who... I mean, you take take. I don't know that much. About I don't even it, know what price they're talking about. My guess is the last about. round of capital was at such a high price that there really isn't much choice other than to go public from here on out. Because here's why, honey: if you're in venture capital, you're demanding essentially that you see a forty to fifty percent compounded rate of return in every investment you make, because you know some are not going to do well. Right. All right. And in order to justify that kind of risk, you've got to come out above 20% if you're doing well, right? And the good ones do. They don't come out at 40. They come out at 20, right? 20, 25. Yeah. They make about what Buffett makes. Yeah. So you, in order to get there, you got you got to see every deal is going to make you 40 to 50% compounded per year. And so when you're coming in these last stages of a company like Uber, there's no way to see that. It's very there, hard. You can't grow the company that big. It's true. It's true. It's very That's hard. And... Yet, I would guess that Uber can get some investors if they want to, which is what they've been doing. They could have That's gone public tough. two years ago if they were so desperate for money, and they didn't. They could have gone public right. last they, year. They, they didn't because they, they didn't more VC, because they were going but, through these these terrible PR situations and real life well, situations, true. and they didn't want to go public at a lower value than they thought they could. So they waited to sort of write their house and put everything in order. And, and now they've got a new CEO and they have a chief privacy officer and they're like, <laughs> boom. And you, you're going to catch some late mezzanine investors in the, in the hedge fund world who are going to say, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll pop in at this valuation. It doesn't give us 40% compounded over the next 10 yeah, years. What it they're, does they're is hurting. it gives us, it gives us, tw you know, it gives us 20% that's a lock. Right, like, and the next year, and you're going to take it public. It's not a completely like who knows what's going to happen with this company early stage investment. It's a very no, very late public, stage investment, and they they've got an idea what they're going to go for. But you know, trust me on this. It really is going from smart money to dumb money. It really is. That's that's what's happening with a company like that. They're they're hoping there's a lot of investors out there who don't need a very big return. By smart money, I mean money that's coming in, really understands what it's doing, and demands a very high rate of return. That's Warren Buffett money. That's Charlie Munger money. Yeah, yeah. No. Right? No, but there they are people. A high return. There are people who don't, as you mentioned, like dumb mezzanine money, investors. It doesn't make them dumb money. D dumb money is mutual fund money. Oh, God. Okay. 
they're going to accept an 8% return, a 6% return. So here yeah. they are, they're taking on, on the Uber. same exact level of risk that the VCs were taking 10 minutes no, ago. They're not, they don't have the same level of risk. Yeah, they no. do. Well, okay, they have liquidity now, which helps them. But they got the same company success risk. They got the same in, investment in in the industry risk, and they're taking six percent for it. Where the VCs wouldn't wouldn't be willing to take anything less than twenty five. I 30. completely disagree with that characterization. All right, well, Late, later stage is so much less risky than early stage. Oh yeah, it is. It so is. they're not taking the but, same level of risk. Well. Of the guys that put the money in last year, yeah, oh, I think well, they are. Last year, the that's, is this last liquidity. year's the same as this year. No, okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. Time to go play. No, no. What you're saying, <laughs> let me make your argument for you. What you're saying is that last year the company was in a world of hurt, and so it was in a much worse situation than it is now. Thank you. Ah, there we go. And the VCs are going to score. Yeah. And they're going to sell it to dumb money. And with that, yeah. I rest my case. Well, I <laughs> have many things to say, but I will stop because I can tell you them next uh, week. All right. Well, what do you want to do next week? I want to keep Talk talking about, about the other ones. Airbnb and Slack. And, um, and I want to hear about your dividend investing idea that you mentioned a couple of times ago. Okay, we'll we'll make short work of both of those, Fine. and then we'll jump on into the deep end of the pool where I swim. All right, the deep talk end to you later. Of the pool. <laughs> Time to go play. We're going after the the big ones. Where the big ones swim, Charlie. I love Charlie's fish metaphors. Fish. Charlie <laughs> says, if you want to if you want to catch fish, you got to fish where the fish are. Seems like an idea. And then he said, and then he said, if you want to really catch fish. Make sure they're swimming around in a barrel. And then he says, and if you really want to catch fish, drain the water. <laughs> so, and that's what we mean by the kind of investing we do. So when, We're going to drain the water. And if you really like fish, I, I, I apologize for the horrible way we're treating the fish in the barrel. They're imaginary. Right, let's go. Um, I, you can tell I just got done reading The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. I got fish on my mind. Oh, you're going to the classics, Dad. I like it. Oh, it was so good. It's so fun to listen to to Sutherland. What's his name? The uh, Donald uh, the, Sutherland, the actor. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, I keep seeing Kiefer. Donald Sutherland narrates "Old Man in the Sea." Oh, you uh, listen to it on audio. Awesome. Yeah, we downloaded audio on it. It was. It's such a short book, yeah. and it's so good. Yeah, it's an incredible book. He rode into the sea, and the sea was cold, and the sun was hot. <laughs> that's that's my version of Hemingway right there. All right, we got to go. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Time to go play. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary 
This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.